one day Mike called me and said, Nikki, grab your camera and come down to Liberty Hall. There's this band I want you to meet. And that's how it happened. And, and it was March 7th, 1974. And the band had come to Houston and to Texas for the first time. And they were scheduled to perform four nights in a row. And the first night, the show was broadcast by the public radio station. That's how, and also Mike had invited all the press and people to show up and guaranteed the house so to get him booked. And I went down there with my camera in hand and I took my one camera body and two lenses, a 28 and a 105. And I was introduced to the band and I just started shooting. It was very comfortable. Nobody was telling me I couldn't do anything. I don't think the band even was used to having anybody take their pictures. So it was like, and there were certainly no minders or anything like that. It wasn't like that at all. And, but the backstage, I guess I'll call it, the environment was very serious. It wasn't a party. It was quieter than most times I'd been to Liberty Hall. And uh, band was serious. I think from the get-go, I realized there was something different about them. The band consisted of Bruce, one guitar, one bass, Gary, Danny, Clarence, and Ernest Boom Carter on drums and David Sanchez on piano. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. Joining me tonight is a very special guest, Nikki Jerain. This is her third Springsteen podcast to say nothing of all the other things she's done, but Nikki was kind enough to join me. We are going to talk a little bit of our musical journey and her amazing book that I'm holding, Springsteen Liberty Hall. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How how has it been? You when you first think of a of an art project, whether it's a whether it's a piece of a painting or a musical song or a sculpture, or in this case, a book, when you first think of it, it's a long journey till it's finished. So are you happy with the finished product? I'm ecstatic. I'm, uh, I, it's actually, it turned out even better than I imagined it would. Ordered it and it came in a couple of days ago and I was almost reluctant to break the seal on it. It's so beautiful. And when I did, I started going through it. And I said, this is 
gorgeous. Not only are the photographs beautiful, but they are printed such a vibrant colors and such a, it is truly, and I am not a collector, but it feels like a high-end photography book. It feels like a high-end art book. And I just am thrilled that it's available to us. Thank you. If that's what you're feeling, then it's everything I hoped it would be. Good. Did you, we're going to get into a little bit of the journey of coming up with this, but I always like to start at the beginning. So talk to me a little bit. Where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to when you were younger? My father and mother met in California during World War II. My father was from Texas. My mother was from North Dakota. And I guess the reason I'm giving you this background is because uh, my, my father was such a huge influence on me. He was in the Army Air Corps as a pilot. And after World War II, my parents got married in Brazil, which is where he got stationed. And then he joined after when the Army Air Corps split up, he joined the Air Force. And our journey was quite wonderful because about every two, two and a half years, ultimately it was my mother, my father, my younger sister and brother were transferred to various parts of the world and we were all born in a different place. I wound up being born in West Palm Beach. My sister was born in the Azores. My brother was born in Massachusetts. And from there we went to Alaska, San Antonio, New Jersey. We were in New Jersey when he was stationed at McGuire. And and then we were transferred to Iran for four years, where I went to high school. And throughout the, these, all this moving around, a lot of people say it wasn't that hard. And actually, it was exciting, and it was normal to us. And I think it just gave me this really vast perspective of the world, and especially going to Iran and seeing how most of the people live in the world, which I think is a wonderful lesson for especially American kids who have so much and there's so many people that have so little. And my, I always, I was always very visual. You can kind of even see it in my baby pictures. I wasn't this sort of happy jovial little baby I was more intense I think like just looking and observing at the world around me and I started manifesting that as a young girl by drawing and my father drew and he he had majored in architecture and engineering at Texas A&M as well as my uncle his younger brother and they were a huge influence on me and I my father and I had a very close relationship 
And he was, I think he was unique in a lot of ways. He gave me just the confidence to do whatever I wanted to do. I never questioned my ability to be able to do something. I just did it. And I think it was because my father instilled that in me just by making it seem normal. It was never, there was never this idea that girls didn't do certain things. Either, it was just not even really discussed. He just almost treated me like an equal in a lot of ways. I was more like a teacher, like a mentor. But I don't even think he thought of himself that way. It just came naturally to him. And the other thing he did was he always took pictures. He always had a camera with him. So he taught me how to draw in perspective when I was about seven years old. And then he gave me, when I said I was interested in doing watercolors, he didn't just give me the little paints that you get from the dime store. He gave me real tube watercolors and real watercolor paper. And I, I still have that my first watercolor <laughs> that I did. And when I was about 11, he gave me my first camera and it was brownie camera and I remember taking it to 4-H camp when we were living in New Jersey mm -hmm. um when I was it one of the black boxes that you yeah. looked down on we uh, had I actually don't think I don't yeah yeah actually because I graduated high school in 77 and so I remember owning a brownie camera. I want to get back to that, but I did want, I am, I love your story of adventure because mine was absolutely the opposite. Mm -hmm. My dad was a career military. He was in the infantry armored division. And I counted up once I went to 13 different schools between first and eighth grade. Um, and I hated it. <laughs> I, I did not have a sense of adventure. I very quickly learned that there was no need to make friends because you were going to have to leave them anyway. I became a massive reader adored comic books and any book I could find. I read, I stuck my nose in a book all the time. I was friendly with people, but I didn't make deep lasting friendships. It was really weird for me when my dad retired and we moved to Louisiana and it's in freshman high school. All my classmates are talking about their having a crush on someone in the third grade or other things. And I can barely remember anyone because <laughs> it is. So to me, it was just something. It was cool to go to Germany and see some things. It Fort Knox was a cool place. We were there with the gold vault, but it was not a sense of adventure for me. And I wish that I could go back to the younger me and tell him, Hey, this is an adventure, not a struggle. So I think good for you that you saw it that way. It was not that way for me at all. 
Yeah, I think I counted up that I went to about 20 different schools through from first grade on the way through through high school. One high school I went to in Iran, I had 28 nationalities and seven different religions. And it was an American missionary school, believe it or not, but they didn't really proselytize, which was probably a very good thing. And I'm curious, did you have brothers and sisters? I did. For some reason, I don't think this was planned. My sister is five years younger than me. And Uh my brother, who just recently passed, was five years younger than her. It's almost as if, hey, I need to get one out of college before the next one starts. (laughs) Uh, That wasn't their plan. I I remember going to junior high in in Germany, but it was a school on base. I often went to, sometimes we were going to schools that were on base. Other times it were schools that were civilian schools. I can remember in third grade, dad was stationed in Vietnam and one of my classmates had lost their mother. And so they didn't do anything for something about it it must not have been mother's day yes mother's day because school probably wouldn't have gone out to the middle of may into may and so they didn't do anything because they were worried about this third grader being feeling bad because she didn't have a mom but they did stuff for dads all the time and i was like i don't have a dad right now he's in vietnam and i'm worried about him so yeah it was my sister my sister was a little bit older and then my my younger brother w- would have been born in 69 and dad retired around 73 74 so he did not spend as much time my mother once i asked her did she watch the lifetime show army wives uh-huh. and she said no i've lived it it's too close to home it's too painful to watch i think our family thrived. It, it, mm-hmm. The only place that my mother didn't love being was Alaska because my brother was really young and he had bronchitis and he was housebound to watch it. And so she yeah. said the happiest day of her life was when we left Alaska. I had no clue because I thought it was a blast. And I, I was in first and second grade. But at any rate, I... I think that those experiences, all of those experiences, I I think my first visual experience that I can remember was from the Azores. And I was three when we left. So I do, it's hard to remember exactly what I really feel I remember and what I see in the pictures. Because my dad, like I said, my dad took a lot of photographs and he was very, it was really Wonder, it's really wonderful to go back and be able to look through all these albums of, and he was very meticulous about it. Like a lot of pilots are very meticulous in how they approach things. He was one of those guys that, one of those, he was a man, like men who came out of World War II. They, they were so mature compared to what we think of when we think of a 27 year old or 20 now, or it's just they're very different, different life experiences and but he was a very capable man he had grown up in the country in in west texas and 
he could do anything. There was practically nothing he couldn't do. And he did it with ease. He loved it. He could fix the car and garden and draw pictures and fly planes. And just about nothing. I could just see that he could do so many things. And I was just like a sponge. I just wanted to learn everything he learned. I used to sit on his um, workbench and learned how to use tools. And, uh, but I also like to do the things that my mother did. I like to knit and sew. And she was definitely the housewife, like the 50s housewife. And I learned a lot. So I just be, I wouldn't say that I became great at any one thing. And my parents had a great work ethic and they had, they also had a, a real under, they seemed to have a real understanding that the kids were, should be kids and parents should be parents. And so we grew up understanding that respect for our elders was really important. And there was a reason why they knew what they knew. And I had great respect for my parents and they all were also very empathetic people. So I feel really blessed. I had a very good childhood, which changed dramatically when I got back to the States because my father died suddenly while I was a freshman in college and it just rocked my world and changed everything. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. 
Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And I made it my mission to managed to get through college. I had to drop out for about three semesters because I was so depressed, but I went back because I thought, you know what, this is what my dad would want me to do. And when I did, I was at the University of Texas and I was in the art department and I was getting my Bachelor of Fine Arts in studio art. And there was a, a professor in the art department who was a teacher, I'm not sure that he had professorship, but he was a teacher, Russell Lee, who was one of the WPA photographers. And at the time, I think he was about 60 years old. And they, unfortunately, they made everybody retire at the age of 65, which I thought was just a tragedy because he was probably, he was probably the best teacher I'd ever had in my life. And I was fortunate enough that when the semester that I went back to finish school, he, I walked up to him and, and asked him if he, if I, if he still had room for him, for me in my, his class, he had this little notebook he used to keep in his pocket, little spiral notebook, and he flipped it over and he said, you're up next, Nikki. It, I only took one course from him, one three-hour course, but it changed everything. And it was a very small it was a very small group of people because the first three hour course in photography was using an eight by 10, not eight by 10, sorry, four by five view camera. And there were five cameras and there were 10 people out in each semester. So two of us would share a camera. The main thing that he was teaching, he was, and he was the, I think he might've been the only teacher in the university systems that was teaching photography in the art department and not in the journalism department. So what he was teaching is really how to see. And it wasn't as technical as it was about seeing. And there is, most photographers would tell you, you have two opportunities to really edit your photograph. One, the first opportunity is when you shoot the photograph. And the second is when you pick the photograph that you want people to see. Yes. And at the time, of course, we were all shooting film. And so I wished I could have been able to take more photography classes from him, but I needed to graduate. I needed to get a job. I needed to go to work. And I decided I better take some courses in education so that I could at least get a teaching job because I wasn't going to get a job with a BFA in fine arts. So I did. I When I graduated, I moved to Houston and I got a job teaching in an all-black high school just outside of Houston. And I was one of three white teachers in the whole school. And actually, it was an, it was a very rewarding experience in a lot of, in many ways, but it was also a big eye opener. 
Because what was I, the time? Yeah, what was the time frame about this? Nikki? I, it was 1970 when okay. I uh, started teaching, and it was the first year that they allowed women teachers to wear pants in the classroom. <laughs> but you had to wear like a tunic over sure. your pants so you didn't show your butt. And then the one happened was, and I, oh, I remember I got paid, my salary was $9,000 a year. And I thought I had the summer where I wasn't going to be teaching and, and I was still going to be getting a paycheck through the summer. I thought I was going to be going back to teaching in the fall. And I was teaching art and I also did the yearbook with the kids. And so a friend said, Nikki, what are you interested in doing this summer? And I said, I'm not sure, but I got to do, I want to do something. And they, and this was an opportunity for me to explore a little bit because I was still getting as meager a paycheck as it was. Sure. And I was also married to my first husband which was cha a challenging relationship being, I'm just going to say it was challenging. Okay. And, and one of, oh, anyway, what this friend said, what do you want to do? Are you interested in commercial art? And I said, no, but I am interested in photography. He said, well, I know a couple of photographers and I'll give you their names. And I said, I'd be interested in maybe being an intern because I knew I didn't know enough technical I have enough technical expertise to actually work in a dark room at that time. One, one phone call I decided wasn't for me. And then another one, I wound up talking to a couple of guys that were partners and turned out to be two of the best photographers, or at least one of them in particular in Houston, doing commercial work for all the major oil companies and so forth and, and advertising agencies and they were more than willing to take me on as an intern. But before I started, I found out I was pregnant. The school didn't want me back. So I thought, oh boy, I guess they're not going to want me there either. That was my mentality at the time. I said, yeah. oh no, come on in. We'll get you an extra large dark, dark room smock. So long story short, I got the internship. And then at the end of the summer, I said, well, now what? And they, so they hired me and I started out. Why the only way I know how to do something is to learn on the job. Right. I, so I, and I wasn't too proud to do anything. I cleaned the bathrooms, ran, made, mixed chemistry, made coffee, ran errands, did all kinds of stuff. But eventually I wound up really learning how to work in the dark room. And I learned just about every photographic process. I'm going to jump fast forward here a little bit. I wound up working for the one photographer for five years. And during those five years, I learned not only all the photographic techniques, I started shooting a lot. I was shooting a lot. I was very interested in documentary photography. And I wanted to, I want, I really liked Mary Ellen Mark a lot, but I knew that the documentary work wouldn't support me and my daughter. By that time, I, by, by about two years into my 
working for the photographer, I wound up getting a divorce. So now I'm a single mom. And I was a pretty serious person. I had to be. I was raising a daughter. Mm. I was trying to make a living. I wasn't getting child support. I was very focused and I was very driven to do well. Well, I I, want to ask you a quick question. You mentioned going to UT. Didn't your father go to A&M? Yes. (laughs) I was going to ask that. And your grandfather, right? Not my grandfather, but my my father, my daughter's grandfather, my uncle, and my godfather all went to Texas A&M, but it was an all-male school. They wouldn't take- Oh, that's okay. I'd forgotten that at that, so there was no choice. But but there was a choice when they had the Turkey Day game. I had to root for (laughs) (laughs) A&M. So I I just couldn't root for UT on Turkey Day. Yeah, for those of you who aren't from Texas, UT and A&M are pretty heavy rivals. So that's what I was, that's pretty I thinking. Think, and I you don't know? think they play against each other anymore. I think no, they don't. Yeah, it's, you know, it is a shame. So you never went back teaching. No, uh, and- never went back teaching. And... I had a lot of really interesting opportunities when I was working for Ron and his name was Ron Scott. Unfortunately, he passed a couple of years ago. It means probably more than that. Mm-hmm. Terrible loss. And he was a great friend and a wonderful teacher and employer. And we were, it, we it was mostly, most of the time, it was just the two of us in the studio. We did wind up hiring another assistant at one point, but and I trained other people to become stylists and to do things for us as we grew. But I kind of reached the a point where I learned everything I could learn. But what happened when I was work, working in the studio, I wound up meeting a lot of very interesting people. And when they had the Houston Art Directors Club show, in Houston one year, in one year in particular, Mike Salisbury, who was the art director for Rolling Stone, West Magazine, and he also taught at Art Center. I met him when he came to be, when he was one of the judges at one of the shows. I think that was the fall of 73. It was like November of 73. And while he was there, he wanted to see my photographs. And I had been turned down from Rice University's master's program. They wanted me to go back to undergrad school to, I went, no. <laughs> I'm interested in being a teacher and I already knew so much at that point. I'd, and I was bummed about it, but at the same, it, it put a chink in my confidence for the moment. But Mike came along and he said, oh, I'd like to see your pictures. And then he said, I'd like to take them back with me to California. And I asked him why. And he said, because I'd like to show them to my students. So that was a huge boost in my confidence. And uh, and then shortly thereafter, he called me and said, I'd like you to shoot a job for me. And it was my first assignment for Rolling Stone. And it was to shoot Tom and Dick Smothers. Oh, how fun. On their comeback 
after being kicked off the air. So I was very nervous about it, but I it turned out to be a very successful shoot. I flew to Dallas and I shot them at the Fairmont Hotel. And one of the pictures wound up in not only as a the leading picture in the article, but also wound up in Newsweek in their newsmakers column. So it was them with their shirts off, make showing mm-hmm. off their muscles. They've been yeah. they had been gymnasts and they were about they're about 10 years older than I am. And they were so that would have made them in their mid-30s. But that was that shoot actually happened just after I shot the photographs that are in this book. Yeah. So I'm going to get to that in a minute. I am a little bit curious just about your journey. It sound, I often talk to people and they'll say, I knew I wanted to be a musician, a songwriter from the moment I heard music. I've heard, I have another good friend who said he knew he wanted to make art the moment he picked up a crayon. He knew that he's one. It sounds like you had an artistic bent, but that is not necessarily the career you pictured yourself. Is that a correct, is that a fair statement? That's a very fair statement, but I would say that I didn't have that kind of moment where I said, oh, I have to do this or that. I think that because I was so interested in so many things, there were so many things. What happened was the moment that really grabbed me on photography was when I took Russell Lee's class at University of Texas. And that's when I think I knew I needed to learn more. And to this day, there is nothing creatively that excites me more than the photograph. It just, it is something like at this point in my life, it it is the thing, but I would say that my sense of responsibility and the things that I knew I had to do to support my daughter and take care of myself had to come before that. And I know there are people that will do anything for their art. They'll starve for their art. That's not me. That's yeah. not the process. And I, I often wonder, Nikki, the, it is a fine line between seeing the film version of someone they never gave up their dream and then sooner or later they made it to okay this person is pursuing this that is they should probably take their energy and their creativity and move it in another direction to be more healthy and i I, you never know was there a point like maybe when you got selected to do this the smothers brothers that you looked around and said wow i i guess i'm a photographer i guess that's become my career was there ever a light bulb moment no i never had that but i will say that when i i got the assignment to shoot the smothers brothers it was the most nervous I was about anything because I knew I couldn't screw up. (laughs) I knew that I was getting on a plane and going to Dallas and I better come back with something on film. 
Right. And I wouldn't know what it was until I got back. I remember I didn't want to shoot with a flash. I never, I've never shot with a flash. And so I was going to have to shoot with whatever available light. We don't have the, didn't have the cameras we have today that allow us to do that. Right. I remember shooting kind of test shots in my living room in low light and trying to make sure that I would get what I wanted. And I was shooting, I was shooting black and white. I was shooting Tri-X. For the book, you'll see that there's color and black and white. It was interesting because Pete Souza, who shares the same book designer I have, when we had a Zoom call during COVID and it was really wonderful. And he said, you were shooting color back in 74? And I said, yeah. And he said, I didn't start shooting color until 78, which is interesting because all of his books are basically color and mine is half. And I didn't think about it because we did everything in the studio. And I realize now how unique that was because for me to have the opportunity to shoot both and I was shooting and processing and printing everything myself. The in the end, I wished I had shot more black and white because I think those are the strongest images. But when you were talking earlier about the color in the book and all that, one of the things I can say is those color images in the book really reflect what the color transparencies look like, including the stage light, the stage lighting, all of that. It was very important to retain that look of what it looked like on those original ectochrome transparencies. And you can do that now. Whereas during the time that I shot them to get a print or a scan or something made from that original transparency that would look as good as those do in the book, it wouldn't have been technically possible. With Adobe Photoshop, with the things you could do to pull the information out of those shadows and to have them have an image that you could see that wouldn't be all muddied up that wouldn't have been possible back in the day all right thank you for letting me explore your history i'm always fascinated by people's journey and that's why i always start at the beginning but let's talk about how you got how you discovered Bruce, how you discovered the band, and how you started photographing them. I didn't go looking for them, and I didn't know who they were at all. I had no knowledge. I was I was working most of the time, and on my days, my weekends, every other weekend, I my my ex husband would take Jennifer. And uh, I'd have a couple of nights to go do whatever I wanted to do. And I used to spend some time at Liberty Hall, which was a very popular music venue and, and a very cool place to go hang out. People were great. And I just wanted to shoot a lot. I just wanted to shoot a lot of, of and friends and situations. I did, a, I did most of the interesting photographs I've ever taken were taken during my 20s. And I, I've lost my train of thought here for a moment. 
That's okay. Oh, I know what it was. So anyway, I had met, and I've mentioned this on a couple of other podcasts and interviews. I had met the CBS record promoter for Bruce Springsteen. And I think he was also really working on promoting there. He was promoting other artists as well, but he was originally from Louisiana. I had a lot of friends in Louisiana, so I'm not sure if I met him that way or if he called the studio and said he needed headshots, but whatever happened, I wound up doing headshots for his name is Mike Pilot. And one day Mike called me and said, Nikki, grab your camera and come down to Liberty Hall. There's this band I want you to meet. And that's how it happened. And and it was March 7th, 1974. And the band had come to Houston and to Texas for the first time. And they were scheduled to perform four nights in a row. And the first night, the show was broadcast by the public radio station. That's how, and also Mike had invited all the press and people to show up and guaranteed the house. So to get him booked. And I went down there with my camera in hand and I took my one camera body and two lenses, a 28 and a 105. And I was introduced to the band and I just started shooting. And I was, it was very comfortable. Nobody was telling me I couldn't do anything. I don't, think the band even was used to having anybody take their pictures. So it was like, and there were certainly no minders or anything like that. It wasn't like that at all. And, but the backstage, I guess I would call it the environment was very serious. It wasn't a party. It was quieter than most times I'd been to Liberty Hall. And uh, band was serious. I think from the get-go, I realized there was something different about them. The band consisted of Bruce, one guitar, one bass, Gary, Danny, Clarence, and Ernest Boom Carter on drums and David Sanchez on piano. I was really intrigued by David because I had studied classical piano when I was a child. And uh, I just thought, wow, what's he doing playing in a rock and roll band? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he was obviously brilliant. And and I was really taken by that. But the difference between how they were backstage and the difference and when they hit the stage were so night and day, it was just explosive. And they impressed everyone. They got rave reviews and they had to add three more shows. They added to the next three nights, they added another show for all the next three nights. And I went all four days and shot them for four days. We're, we haven't really talked about your musical fandom before this. It sounds like you're very passionate about art and photography. Were you a big music fan? And if so, what kind of music? My parents always played music. They, I think it, it started out primarily, I think, doing going to the big bands 
shows during World War II. They were out in California, so they had an opportunity to go to a lot of really great shows, a lot of entertainment. So I was fortunate that, and my father being as technical as he was, he loved gadgetry and he loved the record player. And he would, he had, they had a really interesting collection of records. And they, I remember for us, for the kids, they always had the wonderful Disney records. I remember Peter and the Wolf loving that. And uh, I know not all kids in that era were, were spending a lot of time listening to music at that time. And this is like the early fifties and, and uh, they also played a lot of Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra and Edie Gourmet. And I was exposed to a lot of great music. I became in Fatuated with Lena Horne. I thought Lena Horne was just the coolest thing on wheels. I just wanted to be Lena Horne. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough later on to see her when she was about 60 years old to perform. And I took my daughter because I said, Oh, you got to see her. She was, oh, that's and I okay. actually ran into her on the sidewalk and the next day, and I, I couldn't even speak. This was in California. I was just dumbstruck. I couldn't say a word. It's the only time I've been like that around anybody that I just uh, couldn't talk. She was just gorgeous. And then, of course, in the 50s, we got exposed to a lot of rock and roll. And I was living in New Jersey and Bandstand was really big. So I used to watch Bandstand and I love to dance. And so I listened to a lot of rock and roll and when we, I got to Iran, the rock and roll, we got all the American rock and roll because American kids would come in and out with all their new records. And we, we didn't have a lot of TV or radio there, but we had a lot of records. And I, I remember I had a little portable, little 45 RPM record player with, we'd have sleepovers and we'd play all our 45s but we also listened to a lot of european rock and roll and and that, a lot of italian french and english rock and roll when the beatles became really big i was just like any other american teenage girl i decided that Paul was my favorite Beatle and my sister and my, and our two best friends all picked a Beatle and we all had a Beatle. And, and I, I remember I, not too long ago, I sent Brian Ray uh, a picture. It, he was, I think it said something about the Beatles being everywhere. And I said, how about this? And I sent him a picture of me in front of my closet with pictures of the Beatles plastered all over it. And I said, this was in Tehran, Iran, in 1964 and he goes what oh i love that yeah we learned all the dances we had the we were just teenage kids so i i had and i had also studied classical music so i would say i had a very broad musical experience and uh, then of course when i went off to college it was like the beginning of all the in the late 60s early 70s all the music that was so wonderful. I it's still my favorite era the 
my first concert I went to was the Rolling Stones in Dallas. And when Brian Jones was still with them. And that was my very first concert, an unadorned Rolling Stones performance. And, and my second one was Bob Dylan. And I, I, I think Bob Dylan got me through my freshman year when my father died. That was really, I kept listening to Dylan a lot. So it, and then when my, my second interesting, what happened was my, when I, I left Houston and moved to San Francisco and ultimately married my second husband. And he was, he had done dozens of movie graphics and album graphics. And one of the last ones he did was the last waltz. Wow. Yeah. I did the last waltz. He did. One when I was it, Boz Skaggs mm-hmm. hits. I remember flying to New York with Boz to shoot with Albert Watson, shoot the cover. So always around it. And I wound up I wound up repping a film production company for a short while and then went on to do a lot of other things, but not photography per se. Okay just did a lot of things that I'd always wanted to do and had never done. Good for you. So it's four days in the Texas, Houston. This is before the band had really popped. And what were your thoughts? Can you remember what your thoughts were about them? You've, I think it's interesting, the dual the two faces, pardon the pun, of the behind the stage, behind the scenes, pretty serious, not as crazy. And then that wild energy and joy on stage. So other thoughts about the band as you were spent four evenings listening and photography, taking pictures? Yeah, what I didn't even think about because of the way I grew up, it didn't occur to me that the band was half black and half white. And I think that weighed a little bit on them coming to Texas, not knowing what they would expect. But fortunately, they were, Liberty Hall was a pretty liberal environment and going and from there going on to Austin to the Armadillo World Headquarters, that would have also been a very liberal environment. Texas, actually, Texas was a very blue state at the time. It wasn't a red state like it is today. So I think that, I mean, there was definitely racism, but but they were pretty, I think they ultimately became pretty comfortable in that environment. But being a 26-year-old young woman taking pictures of guys in their 24-year-old guys, they were happy to have me there. (laughs) I bet. So I, but I was pretty serious about what I was doing. And, and so when, and when you're shooting pictures, you're not really listening to the music the same way everybody else is. It's like trying to have two senses going at the same time. It's very difficult to make. One is going to override the other. And if you're shooting pictures, you, your visual sense is taking over your auditory sense. 
and you can ask almost any photographer that's shooting there, they'd like to put their camera down and just enjoy the show if they want to really listen to the music. And I don't have a lot of recollection about specific things so much about the music, but I do remember standing in certain places. And I remember there, it, let's face it, this almost 50 years ago. So it's hard to remember certain things, Sure, but to con- reconstruct a lot of it when I was talking with my pilot or with Gary about what they remembered, it, it all started to come together. So this was just another gig You've mm-hmm. talked about, Nikki, you've gone on and done a lot of different things. And I think that's another subject for a different podcast that I think would be a blast to have. But let's talk about the origins of when you decided maybe there'd be an interest in sharing these photos. Talk to me that journey. It's funny because when I remember, I the photographs weren't being shot for any particular reason. And I'm, I've never asked Mike this question, but I got to ask him, how come you yeah. didn't use photographs? But yeah. he, he didn't, but Rolling Stone did. Rolling, Mike Salisbury said, don't you have some pictures of Bruce Springsteen? And they ran an article on them when they came back to Texas that same year. And, and they used one of the photographs, which is in the book. You can see that. And uh, they paid me 50 bucks for it. And now you know why I didn't make a career out of that. Yes. Anyway, so fast forward, I didn't really follow the band. I saw them when they came back to Houston and that same year. And then I didn't see them again when they came back after that. And then, and then Fast forward to about mid eighties, they came to, I think it was the Born to Run tour. They were playing it. I was living in San Francisco and they were playing at the Oakland Coliseum. And I asked my daughter if she'd like to go to a show. And I got a word to Gary talent that I call, I call Bill Graham's office and I, there's one thing I learned in my photography studio. I know how to get things done. So I called Bill Graham's office and I said, could I get a message to Gary Talent? And they called me back and said, there's going to be two tickets for you and a backstage and backstage passes for the show. So I, that's when I realized how big they were. And it was Nils now with the band Patty and, I can't remember. I guess Stephen must have been there too. And so, did why Gary? Had you guys connected earlier? We actually had brief a little bit. He had invited me to come to the second show. The second time they came back to Texas, invited me okay. to come back to the show, and I did, but I didn't take my camera because I wanted to see the show. So I just knew that if I took my camera, I wouldn't. Sure, absolutely. It It makes sense. Yeah. So I didn't take my camera. And then after I moved to San Francisco, I got a phone call from him and he had just, he had, I don't know, randomly tried to look for me. Then at one time when they came back to Houston and found out I wasn't there anymore. So he asked my boss where I was and 
he called me in San Francisco and said, we're going to play Winterland. And do you, would you like to come? And I said, no, I better not. Cause I just had a feeling that he might have an interest in me at that time. And I just felt like that wouldn't be a good idea since I was in a relationship and I always liked him. I always thought he was very sweet, but everybody was nice. Everybody was mm-hmm. nice. But Gary is when I guess you got to watch out for those shy bass players. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Okay. So I thought he was adorable. And well, um, he is. Let's face it. You see him even today, right? He's got his glasses on. He's sitting there just being cool. And well, just he-, he is. He's a. He's a wonderful person, and I, I, one of his closest friends here in Nashville, who knew him in New Jersey as a teenager, was telling me one day he, he picked me up at the airport to give me a ride home when I took a break from the tour, and he said Gary has never changed. He's the same person he's always been since he was he knew him as a teenager. That he has no affectation. He's just who he is. He just loves to play music, bottom line. And he's a phenomenal bass player. He's yeah. just, and he's very modest about it. I have had bass players on the podcast that talk about how understated and how just you don't realize how good he is. You, he says, Jesse, I remember he's, I know as a fan, you think you know how good he is. I'm telling you, as someone who makes my living playing a bass, he's better than you think he is. And I was like, wow, that's quite a compliment. That is, that's a wonderful compliment. And Gary doesn't toot his own horn, as you probably know. He's he's not good at self-promotion or any of that stuff. He's not really comfortable. He doesn't, he wouldn't be comfortable being the front man. He's that, right. that was putting, when he did his albums and he did perform as a front man, it's out of his comfort zone. And, but he, he was challenging himself to do something like right. that. But he, I think he's, the way I would describe it is that Gary, music is part of who he is. So when he plays, if somebody were to try to play his bass lines, I don't think they, they certainly wouldn't be able to duplicate it because it's, it's never quite the same. He's feeling it more than anything. And, but he knows it so well now. He, I think he told me one time that he knows what song they're, that they're going to, this is before they had this set list like they have now, where they're really set but he could he would know what Bruce is going to do even before he hit a note it just by how he moved or how he did. he's always paying attention he has to he and max have to pay attention to every single thing that's happening on that stage because if anything goes off a little bit they have to bring it back yeah. so he's not going to be he's not going to be taking his hand off the bass or gesticulating or showing off that's just not who he is anyway but he's working through every single song yeah i uh, okay let's go back to the book because we could go off on a whole nother tangent Um, (laughs) you got a whole 50 bucks by having a book 
a photo used. Uh, <laughs> so what led you to try to put this together? Well, I, 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 know, I remember your question you asked me. The question was, first of all, when I took the pictures, I and they were, it was all said and done. It's like, who's ever going to want these? And at the time that I shot them, they thought they were there was a very good chance they would lose that Bruce would lose his contract with his right. contract. So it was like do or die. And his relationship with Mike Appel was on the skids, and with the lawsuit was coming out came out of this right after that I believe I don't know the exact timing of it and and then Dave David and Boom left the group and that's when Max and Roy came on board so Max and Roy would have been with him when they came back to Texas so the photographs went on the shelf and they pretty much stayed there and I wouldn't say that I never thought about anything to do with them, but I just didn't, it wasn't a priority and I didn't have a focus on it. The one person who was always asking me when you're ever going to do anything with those is my daughter. Uh, and But not when she was younger, as she got older, when she was in her 20s and 30s, she said, I'm going to do something with these things. And I said, I don't have time to devote to that right now. And I honestly knew that for it to be successful, the way it needed to be was that I needed to have Bruce's blessing. I wasn't going to do it without his blessing. And of course, I and a couple of decades, at least two decades went by, more than that before I ever saw Gary again or talked to him. So fast forward through life. Now it's 20, uh, 2011, New Year's Day. And I'm living in Sonoma, California. I'm a real estate agent there. I, I had a 30-year career selling country properties in Sonoma and Napa, California. And the good news about that was not only when it was a beautiful place, but I was making some pretty serious money that would allow me to be able to ultimately retire and have some security. And I was, and I Anyway, I got a phone call on New Year's Day and it was an, a number I didn't recognize. And when I picked up my voicemail, I it was Gary and I was stunned and I called him back and I said, oh, my Lord, I said, how did you find me? <laughs> and he said, you know, the Internet. And I thought, well, yeah, you're a real estate agent. And he, of course, you name's exactly. Yeah, I guess like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So what had happened was he had gotten a call from Bill Whitbeck, who is the bass player for Robert Earl Keane. And Bill was a 17-year-old kid from Texas who came to Liberty Hall and decided he was going to be a bass player. Mm. And he ran out with a bunch of his friends to get the re records. And he had, was writing an article about Gary at Liberty Hall and he wanted to know if Gary had any photographs. And he said, well, I don't, but I know somebody who does. And anybody that knows Gary knows it doesn't forget much. He's like, his, he knows music history. He's the historian in the group, really. I think he and Steve Van Zandt are probably very knowledgeable. Not that the rest of them aren't, but he's... Yeah. he's Pretty great recall there. But anyway, so 
uh, Gary said, do you by any chance still have those photographs? And I said, oh yeah, somewhere. I never threw anything away like that. Right. I kept my negatives and, and uh, I said, you can have whatever you need. So I sent him some color shots. And then I said, I found these rolls of black and white. I'm going to have them scanned and I'm going to send you a CD. And, and when I did, he went ballistic. He said, oh my God. He said, we don't have anything like this. You have to do something with these. You've got to do like a limited edition portfolio. And I thought, how does he know what a limited edition portfolio is? Yeah. You know? and, and so that started the wheels turning, but still I had a 24 seven job and I just said, you know, that's not something I can do right now. And I had, I didn't see, I didn't see how I could possibly do anything like that. But I started exploring it in 2014. I was getting ready to thinking about retiring. I was really getting close to that time. And I was working towards that. And I started looking at the possibilities. And when I did, I realized how much it was going to take and how much work it was going to be. And I said, I got to put this on hold. So I did. Then in 2018, I got another phone call from Gary. Actually, that's not exactly how it happened. I got a message on my email wishing me happy birthday. And ultimately, Gary and I started talking. And we talked for about three months, long distance. And there was clearly a, a real connection between the two of us. And it was very sweet. And at one point he said, I really have to see you. He ultimately made a trip to California in September of 2018. And well, that was the beginning of our relationship. I moved to Nashville in 2019. I was planning on going to New Orleans. And he said, do you think you changed your mind and maybe come to Nashville? And I said, well, that depends. <laughs> then when I got to Nashville, and COVID hit, we were sitting around one day and he said, do you mind if I send a couple of pictures to Bruce? Because Bruce, I don't think Bruce had seen them except for maybe the Rolling Stone photograph. And I said, I knew that was going to start something. And I said, okay. And, I, and when Bruce saw them, he loved what we sent him. And he said, who took these? And ultimately we had a conversation that afternoon and I told him a little background and I, and of course he remembered all of it and re he didn't remember me per se. Yeah. But I didn't ask him that question, but I was pretty sure he, that would be a pretty difficult thing to remember. But he said, what can I do to help? And I said, we know you can write. So yeah, <laughs> that was the beginning. And then there were a number of things that happened to make it even more interesting. Bob Santelli came over to the house and they were talking on the back porch. And when they got through with their meeting, I and I heard Bob kept talking about this period of time that he loved so much in Bruce's career. And I said, well, would you like to see some pictures? And he said, 
you have some? I said, yeah. And I showed them to him and he went nuts for them. And he said, what can I do to help? And I said, I need a writer. I said, I don't write. And I certainly don't write about music. So Bob was on board and Gary had written his recollections. And then it was just a question of getting Bruce's preface. And the other thing that had happened was a friend of mine who's a fabulous photographer out of Napa, California. She had done a beautiful book on traveling family circus, and she had used this wonderful book designer, Yolanda Cuomo, who happened to be from Weehawken. And when I looked at her website, I went, oh my Lord, her work was so spectacular and done these beautiful books. And I knew that she could do what I might envision, which would be, and this is what I really love about what you said in the beginning of this podcast, a beautiful fine arts book. That was my background. And I have a whole collection of books, of photography books of all kinds of photographers and certainly some of the best. And, and so I knew that's what I wanted it to look like. And, but I just wasn't sure that Yolanda would be interested in doing a book on rock and roll. Well, I should have known better because if you say Springsteen with anybody in New Jersey, it's just <laughs> Of course, we'll do this. And then it also turned out that she would Pete Sousa's books. And when Pete found out she was working on the Springsteen book, he wanted to meet me, which I thought was, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I was such a fan. I am such a fan of his. And he's such a fabulous photographer. And uh, so the pieces were all coming together. And I have to say that what happened in my relationship with Yolanda was that we both think the same way in a way that we think out loud and we move through the creative process and until it finally starts to feel right. And we both There was some back and forth and I pushed back a few times as it started to get a little too commercial. And and the other thing that happened was I didn't know anything about publishing a book, but I definitely decided after talking to a couple of publishers that I did not want a publisher because I knew it wouldn't be the book I wanted it to be. What do you mean by that? Because the publisher just takes over. They typically pick the printer. They oftentimes pick the designer, not all the time, but they start seeing what they want it to be. And they are, and a publisher is picking, oftentimes picking up the tab. And I decided I didn't work for 30 years in real estate doing something that just almost killed me because it was so, so hard and so exhausting to work like that. It was really every day for 30 years. And I didn't work that hard not to be able to spend the money on something I really wanted to do. So it's a very, very expensive process to put a book like this together, especially to have a master printer print the black and white, which was so important. And as a consumer, I saw it and 
I had a little bit of a sticker shock, but I said, just got my income tax refund. This Uh is my little gift to myself. And when I got it, I'm like, oh my goodness. It, and I know this sounds like a cliche, like you'll talk about every penny is on the screen. They'll talk about films that do that. Every penny is in this book. You have cut no corners. This is done so well. It is a heavy book. It is a beautiful book. It is truly, like I said, it feels like a high-end art book that is absolutely worth every penny even more. Uh, So well done. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate that. I think going, I'm going to go back to my dad for a moment. Okay. I, I don't think I could have done it any other way. My father was an Air Force officer. We all know the military doesn't, there. you don't get rich being in the military. But my right. dad was, he appreciated fine things. He appreciated, like he had a Cadillac. He was the car to have back in the day. And, but he would save up, he'd buy the car. He'd have one car, the Cadillac, and he would maintain it. He read the manual from front to back. He read, he would service it himself. He did this with everything that he ever had, like whatever his his record player was or his camera equipment. When I finally got his Argus, when I was in high school, he bought a Leica, but he also had the ability to go to the base exchange and get things at a good rate. And so he was very frugal with his money. And he always, he wouldn't, we didn't have a lot of stuff. We didn't have stuff. We had a few really nice things. And so I think I learned to appreciate the finer things in life. And I, understood what the differences were and I knew that I could not do this book unless I did it to the best of my ability and it's the only book I'll do I'm not going to be doing another book and I'm not even going to do a second edition this is it there's 5,000 copies of this book and that's all there's going to there's going to be and but I did it I did. I had a, an idea of what it would look like, and it, when it started to come together, it was hard to figure out exactly what it was going to look like when it was all said and done. But all the decisions that were made throughout the cover picture, I knew what I wanted on the cover picture. I knew that because I did. I wanted to be a suggestion, not an obvious, blatant photograph, but a suggestion and very graphic image of, of Bruce. And the back cover says it all. This is who's in here, but the front cover had to be the way it was. Yolanda's design is, she's unbelievable. She's just so good at what she does. And because of Yolanda, we were able to ultimately wind up with this fantastic printer in Italy, whose family's been doing this for for decades and decades, probably centuries, actually. Yeah. I, not sure when they started, but 
there was no question that the craftsmanship and the workmanship that went into the printing of the book was the best I could possibly get. And uh, that's a perfect choice. Craftsmanship is a perfect, because I was trying to, I was struggling how to say how well built this is and how it, it's heavy and it's beautiful. And yes, it is, it is a work of art. It is, there has been care and craftsmanship built in building this. And so if this is going to be the only one you're doing, you've got to be pretty proud of it. I am, I am very proud of it. And, uh, and I, it was really Gary started the wheels going on this on in a couple of different times. Yeah. Uh, he didn't realize what it was going to take to go into it. It's a lot more work, honestly, to get the book sold and distributed than it is to design it. The de that's the fun part. So that I enjoyed that. When I really realized what it was going to ultimately look like was when I received what they call the fold and grabs. I did not go to Italy on press with Yolanda. I felt like that. It was I was just like the extra that wouldn't have anything to add to the equation because I didn't know what to how to communicate with the printers. They speak English, but Yolanda speaks Italian. Right. Um, she went and she was able to make corrections on press. What we did was what makes there's a couple, there's all kinds of different things that went into the book to make it what it is. But one of the things that we did was we had a master printer, Chuck Kelton, make the photographs from the original negatives. He explained to me that the negatives were better than any black and white trans negatives that you would get today that because they used to use more silver in the film okay. and the negatives were in very were in excellent condition so he did test prints five test prints of every image that's in the book of the black and white images and then we picked the best one and we scanned that print and sent the print and the scan to the printer and we did the same with the color photographs only they were scanned from transparency so we were able to pull some information out of the shadows on adobe photoshop and we sent ultimately the guide prints and the scans to the printers so they had so if there was a correction to be made they had the guide print to match and make the correction on press the paper stock obviously is beautiful and when I got what they call the fold and grabs, which are which is the book form, but it's not bound, and mm -hmm. they sent it to me for final approval before they bound the book, my jaw dropped. I just I knew it was going to be good, but I had no idea, and it, I just thought it was spectacular. Everything was exceeded my expectations. So. I am, I'm very proud of it. And I did think about the cost, the, believe it or not, there's no money to be made on the book. The, no, that I can not, imagine. There's no money. I'll be lucky to break even. I wanted to keep the cost. A couple of people said, oh, I, this is really a, a, worth more than $65. And I oh, said- Oh, I, I now look at this, I would go easy $100. But I intentionally didn't want to do that 
because I knew that fans would struggle for $65 plus shipping costs. By the time right. you add all that in, it starts to become a hundred dollars. Yeah. And I just thought, I don't want to do that. And I'd rather lose money on the book than raise the price of the book because I knew that ultimately people would want photographs, prints made from yes. photographs in the book. And that if there was any way to re recoup, that would be where it would happen. That is the plan. I have a website that I haven't launched yet, but I will shortly, which in which I've selected, I think about 22 images, both color and black and white. And people will be able to order prints from. Well, they will be beautiful. I can, I, I don't know which ones you picked, but they're going to be gorgeous. It's and there. I did something else too, which I haven't, I haven't put out there yet, but I did a limited edition box set portfolio, which was the biggest ticket item. And it's uh, 16, 16 black and white archival silver prints mm -hmm. and a beautifully designed box that Yolanda did and one color print. And there's only 35. Wow. That's cool. There's 35 boxes and it's a very expensive item. It just the prints alone were broke the bank. Yeah. So, but there will also be individual prints from 11 by 14 on up to 20 by 24. The only ones that there will be some that won't be available in 16 by 20s because they're in the portfolio and I won't reproduce sure. them by 20s of those. But that will be on my, my Nikki Germain photography website shortly. Yeah. And once you get that link live, let me know. What did Bruce, what did Gary, what did Bob <laughs> think you know, well, the people that were supporting you? They, they love it. I, Bruce actually has the portfolio. I gave him one to him and I gave one to Bob Santelli to show to potential collectors and Bruce loves the book and he's particularly, as you probably know from the shows he's doing now, he's very nostalgic. And this is a, a period of time that was very sweet and they struck, were struggling, obviously, but yeah. still there's something very special about it. There's a picture I took on the corner, East Street corner of Gary and Vinny and David, where you can see how much those guys love each other. And I think that's really the message that I'm getting out of this tour. So I was going to, and gosh, I've kept you so long. I hope you're okay on time. I, we can yeah. wrap this up shortly, but I've gone to three shows uh, and I adore, first off, I'm a Springsteen fan, so I'm going to be happy no matter what we get. But I really feel that this tour, he's, the band has a message they are telling us. And that's why there aren't as many 
wild cards. I believe there is a message about beginnings and endings and looking back and looking forward. It's a very powerful set list. I, I think so too. And I think they feel really good about it. I think some people might be disappointed that they're not pulling people up on stage. They're not doing that kind of stuff. But that to me is a distraction from the music. When I go to hear a concert, I want to hear the music and that's what you get. You're getting the music. You're not getting a lot of that, all that stuff that distracts from, they're just hitting one song right after another. And there's a reason for that flow. And I think it keeps getting better and better. I didn't think it could get much better, but it does. It, as the and it's a lot better for the band, I think, to know to be able to improve upon each song. If and there, it's hard to believe that there's room for improvement, but there, yeah, in anything that you do, there's always something that can be better. But these guys, they just are so good at what they do, and they they have an incredible working relationship a lot of respect for each other on that stage. And uh, it's, I'm blown away by the stamina also. It's a, I was, saw somebody being interviewed the other day. I can't remember who it was, but it says it's a schlepping <laughs> that's, that wears you down. I think there was one day that we left New York about one in the afternoon went to Cleveland and wound up in Baltimore at one in the morning. And in between leaving New York and going to Baltimore, they did a show. So mm -hmm. that's, that's taxing. Yes. And, and I was feeling guilty about just wanting to do nothing but hang in the, out in the hotel room and sleep all day. But then I found out everybody was kind of feeling that way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Except That's for maybe the youngsters. There's a yes, absolutely. youngsters in the show. <laughs> yeah. All right. This has been beautiful. Um, the book is available at springsteenlibertyhall.com. We'll mm -hmm. include the link. It is a limited run. You heard Nikki say it. There's not going to be a second printing. So if you want this masterpiece, you need to get it. Then once you get the website, I hope, be sure and send it to me and I will help promote it. But before I get you out of here, I have to ask you the Mary question. Okay. So if you are checking out this interview because you have heard Nikki on other shows, or you've picked up the book and you wanted to hear a little bit more information, I end every podcast with the Mary question. Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher from the Philadelphia area that has recently retired. But when he was teaching, he would give his students the lyrics to Thunder Road. He would ask them to read it. They would talk about the imagery Bruce uses. They would talk about the themes of the song. And then at the end of the two days, he would ask the question, does Mary get in the car? Nikki, that is your question. Does Nikki get to his, Nikki, boy, talk about a Freudian slip. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Of course she does. Absolutely. No doubt in your mind, right? No, of course she gets in the car. It's a very uplifting. We're, this, and this is a very positive 
message and tour that we're on right now. And of course she gets in the car. There's a lot more adventures and exploring to do out there. Absolutely. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? I'm on all the social media. You know how to, you knew how to reach me on all the social media sites on the, there's a, there's an email address on the info address on the Springsteen Liberty Hall site. The book took a long time to release in Europe, but it is available in Europe. There's a fulfillment center in the Netherlands. So for European fans, and we know there is a bunch. Sure. Uh, the book is readily available. There are, there's quite a few books there, but I left about half in Europe and brought half to the States. It's there. I don't know. I don't even know how many books I've sold. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I just know there's plenty of books right now, but somebody asked me if I'd have books in December when I come to San Francisco or do book signing. I said, I'm not sure there'll be any left by then. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Don't hesitate. Mm-hmm. All right. Hang tight while I do a little business. Listeners, I'm always looking for feedback. There are multiple ways to reach out. You can email me at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. Our Set Lusting Bruce hotline is 469-249-2442. I am on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is on Twitter at Set Lusting Bruce. And please go to wherever you get your podcast, rate and review us. That is how people find us. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're preparing You've got some kind of thing happening in Europe. Ah! As of this time, next next week, we'll be in Barcelona. So that is so exciting. I'm very excited about it. I've wanted to go to Barcelona ever since I studied art history in college, and I've never been. So I'm, uh, I'm excited. Safe travels. So good. Please let Gary know that we appreciate him and the rest of the band so much. Thank you for your time tonight. Be safe, listeners. Be safe, be kind, and we will talk to you soon. Goodbye. Jesse, thank you. You're welcome. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, So if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. 
You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Bed Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.